Welcome to DIA Today, Democracy in America Today. I'm Matt Parks alongside Dave Corbett. Glad to have you with us as we explore the ideas behind today's headlines. How's California, Dave? Still California. Beautiful weather. Beautiful weather. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) And all the rest that goes with that. Uh, yeah, well, I, you know, we're going to talk about the convention coming up here, which is great. Uh, I think that uh, President Trump's got odds have gotten a little bit better, uh, which I don't know how it's going to bode for November 3rd. We're beginning to think maybe staying a night in Palm Springs, you know, if, if things get out of hand here, it might be the prudent thing to do. But anyway, California is a, is a wonderful, uh, wonderful place on many fronts. I'll just leave it there. Well, last week, We talked about the Democratic National Convention and the intellectual roots of the progressivism that was clearly on display during that convention. And so this week, naturally, we're going to talk about the Republican National Convention and take a look at some of the roots of the present Republican Party, again, based on the things that we were able to observe over the last four nights. Uh, Before we get to the headlines, though, just a quick reminder about how you can support the show Uh, besides continuing to listen, which we're obviously very grateful for. But about 60% of our downloads are from Apple Podcasts, where we have a perfect 5.0 review rating. Uh, But we could use more reviews. So if you're listening to the show and you enjoy the show, love to have you get on Apple Podcasts and give it a rating, give it a review. You can also follow us on Instagram at Democracy in America Today, where we're trying to continue to connect headlines to the themes that we're talking about on the show. So let's turn to those headlines. And what we're going to do is let me start out with some of the big themes of this last week's Republican convention. I want to start with kind of the overall big picture. And obviously, the advantage in some ways for the Republican Party is going second. And so they got to respond to the argument that the Democratic Party was making. And as we talked about last time, the, the argument against Trump from the Democratic convention was an argument about his character and his competency. Not a good guy, and you don't get anything for it, right? The the bargain, well, not a good guy, but at least he gets things done. No, he doesn't get things done, especially on COVID-19. He's messed it up. We could do better. So character and competency over and over again were the two things that they were hitting. Now, on the reverse side, the case for Biden, again, as we focused on last time, was empathy. We heard that word. 72,000 times over and over again, not just the word itself, but examples of Joe Biden showing compassion for this person, empathy for that person, et cetera. And then his willingness to rely on the experts, the scientists in particular. We heard science over and over again. So empathy and experts for Biden, character and competency against Trump. And so I kind of want to look at how the Republican Party responded to that over the course of the last four nights, because I think they were clearly wanting to do that. They were wanting to tell their own story too, but they were clearly responding to what the Democratic convention was saying. So let's start with with Trump's character. On the one hand, they concede, well, okay, you don't like the tweets. I don't like the tweets, right? There are several speakers who are willing to say, I don't really like the tweets. Or at least with sort of that knowing glimmer in their eye, we all know that there's a problem there. But the way they spin that is, well, he keeps it real right? You don't like it, but he keeps it real. You know where he stands, as Ivanka, I think, put it last night in introducing her father. So 
you know, that, that's kind of how we deal with that. But then pivot from there to the fact that there's a lot of forgotten people out there and he gets things done for those people. And so contrary to this charge of incompetency, we'll get to COVID-19, but, but when it comes to the little guy, the person who's been forgotten, the person who politicians have promised lots of things to, but have never actually delivered for, Donald Trump has uniquely gotten things done. Yeah, I think they're mad that the attempt by Republicans is, is to do something that's very much in vogue in the 21st century. It's really the claim to legitimacy, which is authenticity, uh, that, that I am yep. more authentic uh, than, than the other. And you, you'll see this, and I'm sure you'll talk about it with the picture drawn of Joe Biden, but you can talk all you want about empathy, but is that reality? You may like me or not, but I am authentically... Uh, who I am, and I'm not going to change. And the country needs and the forgotten people of this country need someone who is authentic. Uh, the most uh, you know, powerful line of all of Trump's speech is that I did what I told you I was going to do. I think that was what he wanted, the case he wanted to make. And he made it, shall we say, exhaustively. <laughs> 5,700 word speech, 70 minutes. There was plenty of it. Uh, he managed to triple the amount of time that Joe Biden spoke, which we thought was was pretty good, 24 minutes. He went for the full hour and 10, which uh, apparently that was the second longest convention speech in modern American history, only uh, surpassed by his 2016 convention speech, where probably the, the larger crowd, more sustained applause probably was the key there. So, yeah, we got we got plenty from President Trump, but but yeah, I mean his his goal was to show that on very specific points he had done what he had said he would do, and to kind of go through in this almost mechanical way the laundry list of promises he had made, and to show how those promises had been fulfilled, and that was kind of the macro level, and then we had the micro level with those speakers each night, often in the at least on the East Coast, the nine o'clock hour right, before the the real primetime speakers who would give these four or five minute speeches about how somebody in their particular economic situation or their personal circumstances, he had reached out to them, he had done something for them and kind of built this narrative that there was more to President Trump than what you see on Twitter, uh, more than what you see in the, the large mainstream media narrative. Yeah, what you call mean, I call faithful. I think that's that's his his main main response. Um, I, I have been faithful to what I said I was going to do, and been tough getting it done. But no one else would have remained faithful as as I have to you, the American people. I think that came out very clear. Yeah. So on the question of his competency, then I think really building upon what you've just been saying, he did what he promised, and he again goes through the America First agenda in particular with jobs, the economy, trade, foreign policy, and shows a pattern of both really Democrat and Republican mainstream establishment candidates who have talked a certain talk, but not actually gotten things done, right? Who've, who've, who've sympathized in theory with the American worker, but then the jobs are still moving overseas. And they talk about protecting them when it comes to trade deals, but it doesn't actually happen. They talk about ending wars, but he actually ended a war. And you know, the, the, the size of the territory that ISIS controlled when he took office, and now it's gone, right? So there's a series of these kinds of things where you, know, you, you, 
you say that the campaign rhetoric was real and I followed through on it. Now, on the specific question of COVID-19, this is, this is a place where obviously the Democratic Party thought he was vulnerable. The response was basically, look, we did a lot of things. A lot of them were maybe behind the scenes, right? They emphasized the fact, for example, that nobody that needed a ventilator was ever denied one. I actually read a story a few weeks ago, really interesting about how the logistics of that worked, really amazing. It was sort of like, you know, an Amazon delivery thing where they were moving these ventilators around the country. So this was happening behind the scenes, kind of the logistics, you know, the sort of unheroic competency of that, of that effort and emphasizing that. And then, you know, a series of measures they've taken, obviously promising big when it came to a vaccine by the end of the year before, I guess that's the bet you make when the election's beginning of November, because <laughs> they're not going to know it didn't happen when they cast their vote. Uh, risky in, in certain ways, but maybe a calculated risk from the standpoint of the politics of it anyway. Overall, the story, I think, was ignore what I said and focus on what I did. And honestly, the story that the Biden campaign and surrogates can tell isn't really all that much more impressive. I think this is one of those places where both sides would do well to be more modest and just admit, look, it's the fog of war, right? No one's going to make all the calls right. We can find the quote, the untimely quote on this or on that, downplaying or overplaying or whatever. Everyone's going to have those quotes. And we can, we're, you know, we can have a whole fall campaign of 30-second ads quoting, Joe Biden said this, xenophobia, and Donald Trump said, don't need masks, and you know, back and forth. And just acknowledge that as you walk through an unprecedented event, you will not always judge rightly. <laughs> but it seems like on both sides, they want to suggest, no, no, we, we had all our ducks in a row. And you know, if you'd followed my plan, Joe Biden says, tens of thousands of people would still be alive. And, and of course, Donald Trump says, if, because we followed my plan, many lives were saved. Probably better just to say, we're doing the best we can in a very difficult situation. There are some real debates about reopening. And those are interesting debates to have. But the sort of going back over the record and trying to prove that you made the right call at every step from January, middle of January on, it's an impossible task to justify everything you said along the way if you're going to try to do that, as it seems like both Biden and Trump are endeavoring to do. Agreed. I, I do think, however, that uh, much like uh, trying to uh, flip the script on the character front, uh, on the uh, competency front, I think that uh, it was a very uh, deliberate effort to show that there's a type of competency to the administration uh, that is not uh, well heralded uh, by the press, uh, that gets things done either behind the scenes or gets things done uh, through uh, a managing of affairs. Uh, uh, Donald Trump, the builder, Donald Trump, the maker, his administration right. working, uh, that uh, I think pointed to a different type of competency. And uh, note last week, I mentioned the influence of pragmatism on the modern American mind that says that something is true if it makes a concrete difference. And I think what the Trump folks were trying to do in, in uh, reeling off his policy victories is say, listen, these made uh, concrete differences in the, in the lives of Americans. And hence, we're the more competent, uh, and the Democrats are incompetent. So I, I think uh, there was a, a changing of the script that was really well, well done and that will help him uh, defend himself against the incompetency charge. 
So that's a good point of transition then to the defense or the case for Biden that had been advanced in the Democratic Party and the Republican response to that. Joe Biden's empathy, the primary argument that was made by Donald Trump himself, I think the only major speaker to use empathy in the context of, of Biden. There were those that spoke about the empathy of Donald Trump trying to rebut his lack of empathy. But, but Trump himself, I think, was the only major speaker who tried to use that as an opening for an attack on Joe Biden and to basically argue that Biden's empathy was a bunch of empty gestures. So there was a passage in the speech last night where he had a little bit of fun. If you, if you were watching it, you saw the eyebrow go up at just the right point. He is the kind of thing you can't teach, right? There's a certain kind of political instinct that he, that he has in certain moments but the line goes, for 47 years, Joe Biden took the donations of blue-collar workers, gave them hugs, and even kisses. And of course, at that point, everyone starts laughing. And that's where the eyebrow rises just, just enough to know that you know that he knows what he's doing there. But he continues, Joe Biden's hollow words of empathy, they didn't want that. They wanted their jobs back. Right? That, that empathy is not enough is the point, if you don't actually get results. You can be as empathetic as you want, but, but I'm actually working to get the jobs back. And then the second line, which was a really strong line of attack also in his speech last night, was that it was simply hypocritical, that you know, the most vulnerable of all, the unborn, Joe Biden is leading a party who has no empathy for unborn children and who supports the most radical position on abortion that any party, any major party has ever supported. So that was, that was striking, that to, you know, to push back on the hypocrisy and the hollowness of the empathy that was being attributed to Joe Biden. I think what he's trying to do there is what every successful American politician does, especially if they want to win an election, and, and they've got to be the uh, the individual in the race that defines equality and suggests that they are the standard bearer for equality. So a rhetoric of empathy uh, does very little for equality if it doesn't produce, uh, produce a concrete equal result, uh, which is certainly uh, the case for some of those laid off workers in those states that you mentioned, and certainly is the reality uh, of the democratic position on late term abortion uh, and the just a uh, how defenseless uh, those babies are. So I, I think that those were strong and, and powerful points. You, you overcome the claim that the other makes to empathy by showing them their record on equality. Yeah, yeah, and that's exactly right. And that's, that is the winning argument in American politics. On the topic of Joe Biden's expertise, the response I think overall was twofold. Number one, that Biden, if he follows the experts, it's the wrong experts. 47 years, how many times did they say 47 years he's been in Washington, 47 years, and especially on matters of foreign policy, trade, the emphasis on how many issues he's gotten wrong, or at least he's on the wrong side of public opinion with regard to voting for the Iraq war, voting in favor of various trade packs, um, being against the operation that ended up killing Osama bin Laden. So, you know, you, you heard this, this list of mistakes, uh, Joe Biden's mistakes repeated by several speakers. So maybe you want to follow the experts, but if your experts are wrong, or you present yourself as an expert on old hand, hey, I've been around forever, great, but 
but are you somebody whose judgment is actually reliable? And then the second part of it was, which experts are we really talking about? Is it going to be experts that are going to run the show or is it actually the radical left? You know, radical was, was the adjective of the week and you know, emphasis on the fact that Joe Biden, is he really running this party? He's the titular lead of it as a presidential candidate, but who's really running it? And the suggestion that it's really Bernie Sanders, it's uh, AOC, it's, it's, it's the far left, the progressive left, the radical left that's really running the show. And, and so it's their policy preferences that are going to be the ones that are implemented if Joe Biden becomes president. Yeah, and I sound like a broken record, but I think it's another good pivot <clears throat> because last week during the Democratic National Convention, really the theme was that he, uh, Donald Trump, is a threat to peace, that he is a threat to your life, uh, that he is a threat to your livelihood, that he is a threat to democracy, that he is a threat to science. And hear what uh, Donald Trump and his supporters were doing is saying, is it, is it really me that is the threat? Or is it they who say that they're going to help you? And who, who are the they that make up the Democratic leaders? Who are the they that make up the Democratic and Republican ruling class? They are, as you mentioned, experts who have had more failures than successes. Uh, and they very well may be moved by a radical agenda that is not for you, but that acquires for themselves more power. So um, it's not me that's the issue. It's it's they, it's, it's, it's this ruling class that is the issue. Two other themes that I want to pick up on just a little bit and talk about just for a moment or two. Um, one that was front and center was that this is really the Trump party as much as it's the Republican party. So we, and we joked last week as we were making our predictions, how many Trumps would speak? And the answer was eight, assuming you count the uh, girlfriend of Don Jr. as a Trump, the former wife of California Governor Gavin Newsom. There's a political life for you. But eight Trump spoke, which, by the way, is the exact same number combined, Republican governors and senators. Okay, eight Trumps, two governors, six senators. Now, to compare that, I look back at 2012. 2012, there were seven senators plus Ted Cruz, who was at that point running for the Senate in Texas, and 12 governors who spoke in about the same amount of time. There's one more hour of prime time to speak in 2012 than there was in 2020. So we've got a real emphasis on the Trump family at the expense of the broader Republican leadership. Not a lot of effort to showcase the rising stars, who's next, who are the, the strong members of the Republican bench that was not on display. And so you're kind of left wondering, well, what, what happens after 2020? Is this just all to set up Don Jr.? Uh, there were a few that may have presidential ambitions that spoke. You think like somebody like Nikki Haley, uh, Tom Cotton, Tim Scott. So there's some others that might be future presidential candidates, but it was really about Trump and the Trump party more than it was building the Republican party. Also, no party platform adopted. They sort of said, well, we're just readopting 2016, um, but no effort to define a party platform. And a lot of the regular people that spoke and, and often spoke so effectively were people that had a personal connection to Trump 
rather than the Republican Party. In fact, a number of them emphasized the fact, hey, I've never voted Republican before. I wasn't a Republican my whole life, but, but Donald Trump did this for me. And so now I'm really loyal to him. And so kind of building a group of personally loyal followers who, again, often made very compelling cases on his behalf, but not something that's going to translate to Republican Party building for the long haul. Yeah, I, I thought that um, both last week and this week in watching the conventions that the one thing that everyone could agree upon, uh, Democrat and Republican, is that the election is about Trump. Yeah, right. That that's, that, that's what they have in common. It, it is about Trump. So last week, it's about how uh, Trump uh, is, is leading the country in the wrong direction. And this convention was about the reverse. So Donald Trump wants Donald Trump um, uh, to be the deciding factor in the election. And, and one last point on, on that, when you look at 2024 and you look at what's going to happen down the road, if, if Donald Trump is still alive, you could kind of see almost a, a godfather situation where he gets to pick his successor. Because you think of how much support is there tied around Trump within Republican circles now, his, his choice is going to matter a lot. So if he wants uh, Nikki Haley or he wants uh, Tom Cotton or his son or what have you, that's going to hold a lot of sway with this uh, Trump supporting crowd. Yeah. And of course, I should have mentioned Mike Pence, who's obviously uh a strong candidate as well, loyal soldier, as we saw again on display Wednesday night. The second thing that was really striking throughout the convention was the appeal to black voters. And there was a, a quote from Don Lemon of CNN earlier in the week that I thought was interesting that, that seemed to be a response maybe to what he perceived as the possible success of this appeal. So he says this on his show, I'm going to say this, I know people don't like it. Most black people don't want police defunded. They don't want fewer police there. What they want, they want more. And more communities of color in this country need police. They may need police more than white communities, okay? And he goes on to have a further discussion with Chris Cuomo about this. But this was the kind of opening that the Republican National Committee was, was looking for. For example, the criminal justice reform, which we talked about the First Step Act several episodes ago, Alice Johnson gave a really powerful speech talking about her experience and how grateful she was for having her sentence commuted after 22 years, serving a life sentence for a nonviolent drug crime and commuted after 20 years and just, you know, an amazing personal story, but then folded that into six months later after her sentence was commuted. This, this law was passed, which then multiplies the effect by thousands of individuals. Abby Johnson also mentions the fact that the Planned Parenthood putting abortion clinics in minority neighborhoods, disproportionate. School choice was mentioned repeatedly. And again, often in the context of opportunity for minority communities, safety in cities. And then you had another line of argument, which was a rebuttal to the Black Lives Matter organization narrative and the broader left narrative of a nation, the United States, that's uh, systemically racist, that's irredeemably racist, um, that really there's, there's nothing to be done here but to tear it down and to start over, or you know, you've got very little to work with in essence. And you had a series of speakers, and you know, most prominently probably Tim Scott, who told a different story, who could say, I went and my family went from cotton to Congress right, in one lifetime. And that's powerful. And, and while 
there's no need to say, and therefore all is well, all problems solved. He didn't say that. There was no need to say that. But the fact that it's better is self-evident from the standpoint of Tim Scott's argument there. Right. Where, where, yeah, where is he standing? He's, he, is, he is now standing at his, as a U.S. senator uh, from South Carolina. I, I, I thought, Matt, I thought his was the best speech of, of the week. And I thought this emphasis was the most powerful part of the whole convention. And, and I think so for the following reason. I, I think it ties together everything that we've been talking about in our assessment of what the convention was hoping to achieve. Uh, is it empathy or is it true authentic care uh, for a group of people uh, who are in great disadvantage and great need? Uh, is it competency when you look at the, the non-results of the last 50 years in a lot of these major cities? Or would you rather have someone working towards criminal justice reform that actually has gotten concrete results and can produce, and Alice Johnson can, can produce individuals who would never have thought of themselves coming forward and speaking in favor of a Republican president? So um, I think um, it, it probably is that area of policy failure for progressives that they least want to talk about. So by shining a light on it and, and saying that they want to get things done and continue to make this part of America a better uh, is, is, is a very, very um, strong uh, argument to make. Second point I'll make on it uh, is that I think it also relieves the fear of, of many who are kind of middle of the road Republicans who wonder, should I tell my friend, should I tell my coworker that I'm thinking of voting for Donald Trump when I know that that other person thinks that any supporter of Trump must be a closet white nationalist or racist. So um, I, I think this um, definitely undercuts a, a lot of that argument and, and would make it more comfortable for people to vote for Republican uh, in, in the 2020 election. Yeah, now let's, let's spend a little bit of time just maybe reviewing some other highlights of the convention as we kind of wrap this up. So you mentioned Tim Scott, I agree. It was fantastic speech, great choice for the keynoter. And I thought it paired well with Nikki Haley's speech because you got two parts of this South Carolina story. So Tim Scott's there saying, what's changed, right? How, how did I end up in Congress running in a majority white district against a Thurmond? And he gets through the primary, maybe not surprising he wins the general election, but now he's U.S. Senator from South Carolina, South Carolina, the, the state of John Calhoun. And then Nikki Haley talks about the experience when she was governor in 2015, when you had the shooting in the church there, and the way the community came together. You remember those powerful scenes of the members of that church praying for and forgiving the, the white nationalist who had perpetrated this horrific crime. And then also mentioning the fact that they took down the Confederate flag in South Carolina in consequence of that in an orderly, she said, in a respectful way. So that was really powerful that here you've got two Republicans from South Carolina who have really seen something different, something new in a state that's whole story historically had been bound up in, in the defense of slavery, segregation, racism. Yeah, I, I, I agree, Matt. And I think that that story says that, yeah, there are certainly hurdles that we still have in American society that, that, that we need to get over. Um, there are certainly, there are a whole host of injustices that are present. 
But is the way forward, is, is the way of progress, the way of tension, antagonism, war, uh, or is it uh, education, uh, orderly change, uh, persuasion, uh, convincing another uh, of something else, praying for them? And, and I think that um, if you want the former, if you want uh, the picture of tension, antagonism, uh, to get to a better place of peace, then, then vote Democratic. If, if you want the change that we've seen in South Carolina, uh, the Republican choice is a better choice. And of course, you saw as this was happening, what was going on in Kenosha and really building upon the Democratic Party's efforts the previous week to emphasize over and over again, peaceful protests, peaceful protests, peaceful protests. And of course, many protests have been peaceful. But but to only talk about that and to not be able to find any language to distinguish peaceful protest and protesters from those that are just burning businesses down that have no rational connection to any injustice and the rush to make judgments and then to act violently on those judgments. The Democratic Party has been very slow to say anything that would suggest that there's a problem. Yeah, and, and one other thing that struck me this week, because we haven't mentioned it yet, but there were the boycotts in a lot of the major sports leagues, the games that were postponed, canceled, et cetera. And one of the things I found really interesting and, and I think um, revealing in a good way, a lot of these players so okay, well, I'm going to protest. I'm not going to play today, but I want to do more. Like, what, what's it going to take to do more? Like, what what produces real positive social change? And that's a great question. And, and, and that's the question that we ought to be considering. So you can support a protest or wear a name on the back of your shirt, but, but what is going to get us to a better place? And I think it's the stuff that Tim Scott and Nikki Haley were talking about in South Carolina. Not easy, that require a lot of work uh, and not perfect. And no, we're not there, but how can we come together in a common effort. As we said 10 episodes ago, what do we do after the protest? Any other speeches that were especially memorable for you as we go back through the roll call Tuesday night, of course, Melania Trump, uh, Mike Pompeo were the, at least the, the, the big name headliners. Wednesday, Mike Pence. Thursday, obviously, President Trump. Any other, whether the, the big names or the smaller figures that struck you? I think it was the smaller figures. It was the, it were the people you didn't know. Uh, I, I think this kid, uh, Nicholas Salmon, I think he did a good job. They just kind of told his story. Uh, Abby Johnson, who would, no one would know that, that name well. Um, these individuals uh, who, as you mentioned, uh, there's always got to be the connection, the personal favor done, done by Trump or attention paid by Trump. But I think that they did uh, a very good job in simple words, telling about their story, telling about their hope uh, for America and uh, presenting a positive front. So I, I hope uh, that part of, of the uh, convention uh, was, was viewed by people because I think sometimes it outshone uh, some of the things that were done during the 10 o'clock hour. Yeah, I thought also Ann Dorn, uh, the wife of the police officer killed in St. Louis, very, very moving as she recounted what it was like to go through that experience and her husband's long career uh, in law enforcement. And I think obviously the overall narrative that they were building, and especially because you had Ann Dorn and then Alice Johnson, if not back to back, 
almost back to back. We can do both these things, right? You can you can have law enforcement be honored and valued, and you can also do criminal justice reform. And then you layer on top of that Pat Lynch from the NYPD who spoke, and the you know the line that struck me, and it's a line that you you know you hear police say that 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 the person who hates bad cops the most are the good cops. Yeah. Right. And so to be able to draw that line, they're, they're bad cops and the good cops want to get rid of the bad cops. And so we can have all, all these three things together. You can be supportive of those that put their lives on the line in defense of the community. You can recognize the injustices that are committed by certain among them and make sensible reforms as we talked about in previous episodes to try to reduce those, hold people accountable, et cetera. And again, you can have the broader conversation about criminal justice reform so that there are fewer people in the system, there are fewer confrontations, de-escalate, et cetera, et cetera. Right? All of this can be very sensibly combined. Yeah, one last thing I'll say about regular people speaking is that it's so much more refreshing than the thing that's happened over the last 40 years where the, the president points to the person, you know, <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> Joe Smith and gives a 30 second, you know, summary of their life to actually hear from these people and give them four to five minutes to tell their story is uh, uh, it really kind of, you, you get what's going on at the individual um, level uh, for Americans. And, and I think that helps you better define just why it is that we want to have a land of, of equality where pe- there is equal justice and, and uh, our rights are secured. Yeah, and it turns out a lot of them are very good speakers. So, you know, you, you, you worry that the amateurs may not be up to the moment, but, but a lot of them were at least as good as the politicians who are supposed to be polished orators. All right, well, let's transition now to our required reading and try to think a little bit more about the broader context of the Republican Party today, where it is, and perhaps where it's headed. Dave, what have you got for us today? So last week when we were trying to kind of flesh out just where progressivism started in the country and how it began to make headway in terms of the policies, we spent a lot of time talking about um, Herbert Crowley and John Dewey and the influence of this kind of kitchen cabinet of progressives on FDR's administration uh, during the New Deal. Uh, Prior to that, you had also had uh, some major changes that had been made by a progressive Republican president, Teddy Roosevelt, and progressive Democratic president, uh, Woodrow Wilson. Uh, Now I want to turn uh, to what I I think are are some of kind of the, the beginning or starting points of of the 20th and 21st century American Republican Party. Uh, There is an element uh, to Republicans uh, that that looks back uh, to the founding and in part looks back uh, to Abraham Lincoln, uh, looks back to what we might call uh, in a a course on American politics, the public philosophy of uh, constitutional liberalism. But a good portion of the American Republican Party from the 20th century onward uh, really uh, takes hold and, and begins to um, have a clear formation under a different heading. And, and that is the, the heading of American individualism or rugged individualism. So on that point, what I want to direct our attention to is the words of, I couldn't call him the father of American individualism, 
but certainly uh, someone who um, spells out what individualism is in a way that I think would resonate to Republican politicians today. And that is Herbert Hoover. Hoover gives a couple uh, interesting addresses. The two that I want to uh, spend a little time on is an address that he gives after coming back from leading the American aid effort after World War I, titled American Individualism. He delivers this address in 1922. Uh, and the second address that uh, I want to take a close look at is uh, an address that he gives in response to FDR and FDR's Four Freedom speech uh, titled the, the Fifth Freedom. So I, I think that in Hoover, we see a lot of the modern Republican Party, and I think we see a good deal of Donald Trump, what makes him tick. So I want to pick up with um, how Hoover defines American individualism. He says that uh, having emerged from the war, he emerged as an unashamed individualist, but he also declares himself an American individualist. And he goes on to write, for America has been steadily developing the ideals that constitute progressive individualism. That's very important. That the type of individualism that he defines as progressive individualism. No doubt individualism run riot with no tempering principle would provide a long category of inequalities, of tyrannies, dominations, and injustices. America, however, has tempered the whole conception of individualism by the injection of a definite principle. And from the principle that follows that attempts at domination, whether in government or in the processes, processes of industry and commerce, are under an insistent curb. If we would have the values of individualism, their stimulation to initiative, to the development of hand and intellect, to the high development of thought and spirituality, they must be tempered with that firm and fixed ideal of American individualism, namely an equality of opportunity. If we would have these values, we must soften its hardness and stimulate progress through that sense of service that lies in our people. So I think what Hoover has done here in kind of laying out the defining characteristic of American individualism is something very important. It's not individualism run amok. It's not laissez-faire individualism. It doesn't mean no government. It, it doesn't mean that the government can't act or shouldn't act. Uh, it means a type of, an, of individualism uh, that is balanced, to use Hoover's words, that is softened by equality of opportunity. So it's, it's a new Republican Party that wants to promote the individual and suggest that oftentimes the government ought to be there uh, to put into the situation a level of equality of opportunity that's not there. So it points to an activism and an interventionism that I think we saw very clearly in this week's convention in the Republican Party. I mean, how many times, Matt, did this week when you were watching this convention, did you hear any talk about the deficit? Or did you hear any talk about um, too much government or government being the problem? Yeah, I mean, there was zero talk of the deficit. I, I'm, unless I missed something and I didn't watch it all, but there was no talk of the deficit. There was... I don't think any talk of cutting spending. There was talk about um, bureaucracy and regulation, cutting those things, certainly cutting taxes. But you're right. I mean, the welfare state more or less taken for granted, no real discussion of it as if there needs to be reforms or anything of that sort. And I think it's interesting, this is a 1922 speech because 1922, 
what you're talking about in terms of equal opportunity and programs that support that are all local and state programs. We're not at the new deal yet, but he's going to get there obviously by the time you get to your second address. And so we're already seeing a Republican party that, that has a more robust place for government in encouraging industry and in, in helping people along the way. And that very much in the context of the rise of progressivism, right? Political progressivism really has its first moment with the ascension of Woodrow Wilson in the, in the teens. And so now in response to that, that equality of opportunity that Crowley had redefined in positive government interventionist terms, that's now being adopted by the man who turns out to be the Republican standard bearer in the late 20s. Yeah, and as a standard bearer uh, suffers a great defeat in 1932 uh, to FDR, uh, suffers a defeat if, if Paul Johnson and Winfred McClay and, and others are right, because he very much wanted to act as a progressive uh, influence on uh, American affairs, public policy, etc. But he had a failure to communicate his care to the American people and was then pigeonholed as someone who was more likely to say government hands off uh, than to do what he actually did, which was to encourage a whole bunch of governmental programs between 1928 and 1932 that eventually make their way into uh, the the New Deal uh, of FDR. Not enough empathy. Not enough empathy, exactly. And so to the degree, once again, going back to the Republican National Convention, that empathy of Trump is shown to be authentic, uh, if, if still kind of hard, iron-fisted, if it's, if it's authentic, uh, then, then maybe Trump uh, gets, um, uh, gets a pass uh, that, that Hoover did not get uh, in 1932. But I want to pivot to the, the second uh, speech that he gives. And this is after he loses the election in, in 1932. This is nine years after and kind of looking back at, at, uh, at the question of, well, what, what job does government have? And, and FDR always wanted to kind of change the narrative of the relationship between society and government by saying the best government serves the people. Uh, and the best way you can allow the government to serve the people is by giving it a lot of power so that it can serve the people. Uh, and how is it going to serve the people? It's going to serve the people by securing their freedoms, uh, freedom of speech and expression, freedom of religion, freedom from fear, uh, freedom from want. So all of the policies of the 1930s are policies that FDR would have def be defining of Western liberal democracy, especially when it uh, looks across the Atlantic Ocean uh, at uh, the, the horror of Nazi Germany and the prospects of, of what that means uh, for the Western world. So Hoover, in responding uh, to the speech, uh, adds what he calls a fifth freedom that ought, ought to always be considered fundamental uh, to the job of American government. Uh, so uh, what is that freedom? For Hoover, the fifth freedom is economic freedom. Uh, quote, I have stated many times over the years that to be free, men must choose their jobs and callings, bargain for their own wages and salaries, save and provide by private property for their families in old age, and they must be free to engage in enterprise so long as each does not injure his fellow man. And that requires laws to prevent abuse. And when I use the term fifth freedom, I use it in this sense only, not in the sense of laissez-faire or economic exploitation. 
Exploitation is the negation of freedom. The fifth freedom does not mean going back to abuses, right? The fifth freedom means doing all of those things at an economic level that allow people to enjoy freedom of speech, freedom of religion, freedom from fear, and freedom from want. So um, once again, Matt, I, 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 when I read those lines, do you see anything in this address uh, that resonates with what was presented at least uh, by RNC speakers this week? I do. And again, I think it really is striking and important to notice that Hoover is adding a fifth freedom, not substituting a new fourth. So the freedom from want, which involved the establishment of the at least first wave of welfare state type of programs, that's something he says, yeah, we need that. We're going to build on that, but we're going to make sure that the administrative state doesn't prevent people from being able to, again, choose their own jobs and negotiate wages and these sorts of things. So you notice that that line that was being drawn, as we've just suggested, between administrative bureaucracy and red tape and regulation, which the Trump campaign, the speakers were boasting about cutting back on, doing real things to free people up in that sense, even while, again, no talk of any kinds of reforms in terms of the welfare state and, and pride in various programs that have helped people along the way. So, I mean, that's, it's, it's very much that, that Hoover bargain, in essence, that they're trying to advance. We will take freedom from want as a government responsibility, a positive duty of the national government. But we're going to layer on top of that a protection of economic freedom within the boundaries of that so that we still have agency over our economic lives, even while we're supportive if things don't go well in unemployment insurance, healthcare, welfare, et cetera. Yeah, and one of the things that you see when you read through Hoover's um, life is how he very much viewed himself uh, as an engineer in terms of a problem solver. So you could see how uh, he would think of himself uh, or a, a president at any time kind of advancing that fifth freedom and being kind of the moral agent behind the securing of of a fifth freedom rather than taking away any of the earlier freedoms. And I think you certainly see that in the, in the person of Donald Trump. He may not view himself as a great engineer, but he views himself as a maker, a doer, a builder. And if he can make and do and build on that fifth freedom front on economic freedom, uh, then he, uh, Donald Trump, has been able to uh, save the day. One last part of, of this address that I, that I think uh, when I was reading through it again, that I think is uh, very applicable to today is, uh, of course, in 1941, there was the prospect of American entry uh, into uh, the war. And, and Hoover knew this and then asked the question, okay, well, what of that fifth freedom, economic freedom, when you're facing uh, the, the challenge of war? And, and you could say the same uh, today, uh, facing the challenge of, uh, of an economy that's been undone by COVID. So here he says uh, of, of economic freedom in, in a time of, of war when you're fighting something great, we must sacrifice much economic freedom to win the war. So you could say we must sacrifice much economic freedom to defeat COVID. But then he goes and say that is economic fascism for fascist economics were born of just these measures in the last war. But there are two vast differences in the application of this sort of economic system at the hands of democracies or at the hands of dictators. 
First, in democracies, we strive to keep free speech, free press, free worship, trial by jury, and other personal liberties alive. And second, we want so to design our actions that these fascist economic measures are not frozen into life, but shall thaw out after the war. So think about that related to uh, life in 2020, uh, where it seems that uh, free speech, free press, free worship, maybe not trial by jury, but some personal liberties are under attack. Um, we have to make sure, right, when we're fighting COVID that, that we keep those things alive and well. And the second thing is that we have to make sure, and this is where I have a great amount of doubt, especially if, we're, if the government's taking on these new powers, that, that these are just short-term measures uh, to alleviate a short-term crisis. They don't become uh, the, the establishing principle by which government views its role in American society. My last reading, uh, having some uh, fun with this, uh, my favorite novel uh, of, um, uh, uh, that covers this period of really 1920s and 30s populism is Robert Penn Warren's All the King's Men. And what I love about Warren's novel is he gives this clear picture of what makes a populist politician tick and, and why is it that people flock to populism? Because I think you have a populism very much alive and well today. I think it was alive and well last week. It was alive and well in, in the RNC convention this week. But you have in the person in, in Warren's novel uh, named The Boss or, or Willie Stark uh, that kind of gives a description of, of what he's doing and, and, and why he's doing what he's doing. And he says, basically, what the American people want me to do, they want me to do something. They want me to try something. Uh, they want me to make good out of bad. And if I have to kind of be sometimes bad to make that good out of badness, so be it. And if you think that you can keep your hands clean, and if you think that politics is necessarily about the rule of law or securing it, and that's the way American life works and, and the American political society ticks in a 20th century, you've got it wrong. We, we live in a different America, and it's going to be people like me that get things done in the 20th and 21st century. So um, I, I think it's kind of a... It's, it's, it's a snapshot of populism in that age, but it's also kind of a sign, a premonition of things to come. Just how, you know, to, to, where is American democracy going to go and what might the new democratic statesman look like in the 20th and 21st century after the rise of the American administrative state? I think you've done a great job of connecting pragmatism and populism and the argument that's been made really across both conventions about who can get things done. And I think if you go back to our conversation a few weeks ago about the future of American conservatism, there's definitely one strain of argument that's essentially saying just what, what Robert Penn Warren is saying there through the boss, that it's just about getting things done. We need to, to fight. We need to win. That these forms which we've honored with perhaps lip service more than maybe actual conformity to, it's time to just sort of throw those overboard, stop pretending, stop worrying about constitutionalism, stop worshiping at the altar of the rule of law, and just go out there and fight, win, accomplish our good for our people. And, and of course, I think we, we, we hear a lot of that. We've seen evidence of that. 
I think it's, it's a very dangerous trend. We can't develop all of that right here, but I think there's no doubt that that's one of the things that comes with populism. And frankly, it's one of the things that comes with American democracy more broadly. I mean, this is the Tocqueville talking about how Americans don't have a lot of patience for forms. They want things done and they're not going to be super particular about how you get them done. So a question for you, Matt, and we may be doing this every week from now until November 3rd or our last show before November 3rd. Uh, on this day, uh, August, what, 28th, is it? Uh, who wins and why? I'm putting you on the spot. This, was, this wasn't part of our script. <laughs> I, I, think, I think Joe Biden is, is going to win still, okay. but I think it's going to be close, and I think it's not going to be settled on November 3rd. <laughs> but we'll see. We'll see. I mean, I, we're, that's really leading right into the gray book and some of the things we're going to talk about a little bit further because the race has really tightened. So we'll see. How about you, Dave? What's, what's your answer to your own question? Yeah, I, I think that I think it'll be close. The, the more I look at the electoral map right now, I see some states that are, that are called toss-ups that I don't think will be. I think Texas, for example, uh, is firmly uh, in the Trump camp, uh, Missouri too. Um, uh, I think uh, Georgia uh, and North Carolina are probably in that category. And I just, I look at what's going on in Pennsylvania, uh, Michigan, Wisconsin, um, uh, Minnesota, I'm forgetting one state, Ohio. So those five, I, I think you've, you've got to win uh, a majority of those five. You've got to get three of those five. And I think right now, um, I think that uh, Joe Biden has four of the five. So it's going to be a question of whether or not uh, Trump can flip two states. Uh, can he flip a Pennsylvania? Can he flip an Ohio? Can he flip um, uh, a Michigan uh, and uh, or a Minnesota? And um, I think that this was a convention uh, that that he did very well by uh, in in flipping those states because I think those are states by and large uh, that have suffered uh, suffered more recently uh, where. Um, uh, equality uh, defined in a compelling way uh, could very well get you a person's vote. So I, I think, uh, I think if, the, if the convention was uh, how things went uh, for the next eight weeks for the president, 10 weeks for the president, that, that he would win a couple of those states. But there's always the big question mark of whether or not um, uh, we can stay on point. And uh, that's, that's what you always worry about with Donald Trump. Right, the the next tweet. It's not just something you can kind of um, set aside in a speech. It's it's an ever present uh, fear um, for someone who would rather see him win uh, than Joe Biden. He was amazingly disciplined last night for seventy minutes. There were definitely a few off the cuff comments, but he never really got far from the script. Whether he can hold that line for two more months through some debates, that'll that'll be interesting. All right, well, let's open the great book. Last week, we graded some of the Democratic Party's COVID-19 era convention innovations. And this week, we're just going to focus on the conventions as a whole. So we've been talking about these conventions for two weeks. We've watched or listened to the speeches. We've, we've read the speeches. We've thought about it. We've talked about it. So Dave, give me an overall grade for the Democratic National Convention. I would give a C-. Uh, and I think that if they had to do it all over again uh, by making it more 
a personal, making it uh, crowds there and all the rest, they would have done that. But you had mentioned before the disadvantage they had going first. Uh, so I think a lot of those issues that you saw in optics, the Republicans were able to make up for. But I'd, I'd say CC minus uh, for the Democratic National Convention. Yeah, I agree with that. I was going to give it, say C. I think the the big mistake besides some of the clunkiness, and you know they probably wanted to send a message on COVID by being extra careful. Obviously, Trump was going a different direction with that, especially last night with 1,500 people and no social distancing and masks here and there. But so some of that was would have probably been a partisan divide regardless. But clearly, there were some of the mechanics that didn't go as well. I think the other major mistake they made was really not defining the agenda as clearly as they might have, which allowed the Republicans the chance to do a lot of that. And some of the, probably the first, a lot of people heard of what the Democrats were actually talking about doing if Biden's elected was from Republican speakers. And so I think that was, that was a strategic mistake. The emphasis on the case against Trump without really filling out the case for Biden, especially on the policy front, I think create an opening for Republicans to define them rather than allowing them to define themselves. How about on the Republican side? What would you give the just completed Republican convention? Well, you could probably tell from my remarks uh, from the show thus far, I, I thought they did a very subtle job in um, uh, flipping the script uh, on the question of Trump's incompetency and, and Trump's character. Uh, so if, if that was the main goal, um, they, I think they accomplished it. Uh, I think if they brought some doubt to, um, to the question of whether or not uh, Joe and the Democratic Party is as competent as he says he is, that Joe and the Democratic Party are more radical than what they say they are, uh, then I think that he's, he's done a good job um, defending um, himself and uh, putting forth uh, some questions in the minds of the American people. But I think what makes it an A-minus uh, convention uh, was the uh, focus on normal people, the focus on regular stories, uh, the speaking um, from the heart, uh, the emphasis on the African-American community, uh, the the game plan, which is to make the case that the Republican Party is truly the party of equality of opportunity in this country. And I think they did a good job of that. I take away four or five Trumps from um, prime speaking slots, and, and it might have been an A, but I'm going to give it an A minus. Okay. Yeah, I'm not quite as high on the overall success of the convention. I would give it a B minus, probably maybe maybe a B. I agree that the ordinary Americans spoke compellingly told some good stories, uh, better production value for sure than the Democratic Convention. I think, though, that the emphasis on Trump, as you mentioned, the family, the no platform we talked about earlier, I think that's, that's, that's a serious problem, not just from the standpoint of party building, but the overall message and, and really important that there be a strong party that stands against the American left. And so if, if Donald Trump isn't going to build that party, that's, that's a serious problem. So that's, that's my concern there. I also would have liked to see him do what some of the other speakers did. The, the, the unqualified embrace of law enforcement, rather than to say, no, there's the good cop, there's the bad cop, there's the needed reforms that can be done in a lawful way, by means of actual peaceful protest and policy changes, that that was a message he could have he could have given, that would have reinforced what some of the speakers 
other speakers were saying, but the fact that he didn't do that, I think was, was a mistake and uh, a missed opportunity. I like how you uh, comment on that. And I, I can kind of see your B minus now because the grade I'm giving is, is a grade, you know, is the Republican convention one that is more likely to get Donald Trump elected in, in 2020. And I think that's why I give it an A minus. Is it a convention that's, that's well set up to define the Republican Party in 2024, 2028? That's a bigger question. And likewise, is it a convention that gave an accurate, an absolutely accurate portrait of what we're up against in terms of uh, these problems in American society and how we're going to be able to solve them? So this seemed to be kind of a, a simpler, easier, this is the problem, we have the solution that very much mirrors you know, what you see oftentimes with, with rhetoric coming out of the Democratic Party. So well taken on both of those points. All right, so let's wrap it up with our crystal ball Quick review of the predictions we made last time. We already talked about one of them. The question was how many different Trumps or Trumps-in-law would give a speech? And as we've already said, eight is the answer. I said eight, although I didn't get the right eight, but I I said eight, Dave, you said seven. Uh, I think it's fair to say that one of those is is not quite a Trump-in-law just yet. So maybe seven and a half is is the right answer. I think that's that's probably pretty close to a tie on that one. Uh, The second question we asked was, which of the following words would, would be in the Washington Post or New York Times headline of the article covering the Trump acceptance speech? We gave six options, and one of those was in both. In fact, interestingly, they must have been reading each other's headlines because all, both of them started, Trump attacks Biden. And then they had a little more to the headline that was different. But Trump attacks Biden was one of our six words attacks. So we got that right. And then our last one was four words that would be in Trump's acceptance speech and one word that wouldn't. I said anarchists protect Mars and stock market. All would be in there. And they were. I was very proud. I, I was waiting for Mars because he got close to Mars a couple of times. He was talking about space, but he hadn't said Mars. And then I heard the magic word and I thought, I got it. I got it. Anarchists three times, protect 11 times. That was, that was probably too easy. But I did say that he wouldn't say wall. And unfortunately, he did bring up the wall, uh, said the word wall twice in the context of building the wall. Dave, you did pretty well on this as well. You mentioned mob, which was in there once, but it was all caps. So maybe that counts double. Lawless, he didn't use that word, but he was certainly talking about lawlessness. Hate was used once, radical five times. That was definitely a good choice. And you were right. The word that he didn't say was immigrant. He did talk about illegal aliens and there are other words kind of around that, but the word immigrant did not appear in the speech. So I think overall, that was one of our more impressive performances in terms of our predictions. Getting getting more prophetic with each podcast. Yeah, that's right. Practice makes perfect. So this week, we're going to look at the polling data in the battleground states. So Real Clear Politics tracks what they call the top battleground states, which are Wisconsin, North Carolina, Florida, Pennsylvania, Michigan, and Arizona. And after the Democratic convention last weekend, Change Research along with CNBC did a poll in each of those six states. So that, that weekend they polled to get kind of an updated picture of where the race was. And there was a second poll in Florida that was kind of around the same time. Biden led in all six states by as few as one point in North Carolina and as many as six points in Michigan. Overall, the average was 3.4 points. So across those six states, average of 3.4 point lead for Biden. So here's the question. How many of those states 
will Biden still lead when this week's polls are released? So assuming we're going to get some more weekend polls following up on the convention released in the next several days. In how many of those states will Biden still lead? And what will be the overall average spread between the two? So the question really is, to what degree does the Republican convention move the polls in these battleground states? Looking at those states, I, I think that it'll move uh, the polls in, in Trump's direction uh, in Wisconsin and in North Carolina, and I'd say perhaps Arizona, but I'm, I'm not sure. So let me play it safe and say it'll move in two battleground states. Uh, I think after um, all of them, uh, the average will be more along the lines of uh, a 1.5 point uh, Biden um, lead rather than 3.4 points. So uh, two points uh, getting closer uh, certainly within striking distance for the Trump campaign. Okay, so four of six states led by Biden, two led by Trump, and overall 1.5 average spread. I'm going to say it's going to be three and three. I think it's going to be three and three. Maybe this will be a temporary move in the direction of Trump, but I think there will be some movement in that direction. But that the overall average um, will be still in Biden's favor, um, but less than one point in his favor. So the, his margins will be a little bit higher than the Trump margins. It'll end up about, we'll say, 0.7 points in his favor. So I, I tried to out-cautious you in my prediction, and then you go a little bit more wild than usual. So I, I flipped it. Yeah, well, I know, okay. because you just asked me. I said Biden's going to win. And, but now what I'm saying is not necessarily consistent with that. I think it's a short-term bounce. We'll see if that lasts. We always, as, we, as we've been saying, we, we, there's always the next shooter drop with President Trump. Well, that's it for this week. Thanks again for tuning in. And we look forward to being back with you next week. In the meantime, please subscribe, review the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, and Stitcher. And have a great week. Look forward to talking to you again soon.